Uh, Please turn back with me uh, in your Bibles uh, to the portion of Scripture that we read earlier on, and in particular uh, from Luke chapter 5 and verse uh, 17. Please turn back uh, to that portion of Scripture. And how about we begin this morning with some hymn lyrics? See if you recognize these. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Do you recognize those words to that hymn? Perhaps, although that might be not to your taste, perhaps you prefer your sung praise a little bit more traditional. Uh, Do you? What about this then? Do you recognize these words? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Two very, very, very different stanzas, I'm sure you would agree, but stanzas Uh, that nevertheless make the same essential point. What is that? Both of those stanzas make the point not just that we, you and I, are sinners, but they make the point that through Jesus of Nazareth, forgiveness for sin, forgiveness is available. That by grace, the Lord our God has devised a way for people such as you and myself, people to be cleansed, people to be forgiven. What was it that the Apostle Paul preached in Pisidian Antioch? Do we recall that? What was that diamond right at the heart, right at the center of the gospel? Paul declared this. Please listen. He declared, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What's that diamond? Forgiveness. Well, this morning um, in this portion of Scripture, it is that diamond of forgiveness that does indeed shimmer, glisten very brightly before us. So, how about this? How about you and I just now pray briefly Let's ask God for help before we turn into this text of Holy Scripture. Bow, please. Let's pray. Lord God, we do come before you. We thank you for this portion of Scripture, but we uh, come and ask you for your grace. We ask for blessing to be poured out upon St. Peter's Free Church this morning. Help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be taught by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might praise you, that we might be changed and be doers of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So first of all, in this portion of Scripture, I want us to see a persistence, a persistence in Luke chapter 
life. I have I said this to you before at least uh, once, but I like the story, so I will keep returning to it. Uh, but in 1541, 1541, when John Calvin returned uh, to the city of Geneva, what he did in his preaching is he picked up from exactly the same point in the scriptures that he had left off <laughs> over three years previously. Isn't that wonderful? He goes away from Geneva for three years comes back into the congregation, he says, as I was saying, after three years, and he expects the congregation to, to remember and to recall, oh, that's where we were. Uh, well, it is, it's not been three years, has it? It's uh, just been a couple of weeks since you and I have been in Luke's gospel. So I'm fairly confident that you will be able to recall where we were when we, we left off. What's the background? It's the setting. It's near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, isn't it? Isn't it? And Jesus has been active in and around Galilee. What has he been doing, Christian friends? He's been healing, certainly. We can remember the leper from last time out. But primarily, the focus of Jesus' ministry has been on preaching and what? Preaching the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. That is the backdrop, isn't it? That's the set. So the question is, of course, what comes next? What happens before us uh, this morning? Well, what we have here in these verses, it reminds me uh, of an event that happened in my previous ministerial charge when I was down in London, and I want you to come with me into it. So it was a, a Friday evening, Friday evening, and we are hosting our monthly 20s and 30s meeting that we would hold at the manse, and I've invited someone, okay, so I've invited a guest uh, to come and speak to the 20s and 30s. There is, however, a problem, a horrible problem, and the problem is that I was running incredibly late for this meeting. I had been across the other side of London. I'd been visiting an elderly member of our congregation, and as happens so often in London, the underground system had let me down, and I am way behind schedule, incredibly late for this meeting. But I will always remember the scene that awaited me when I eventually arrived. Now, I'll use not a Hebrew expression, or a Greek expression, but a Scottish expression that you'll, most of you will understand. Our house that Friday evening for this 20s and 30s meeting, it was hoaching. It really was. So uh, everyone that we had imagined that might possibly attend this meeting, every one of them had shown up. And they seem, all of them, to have brought friends with them. And every seat in our house is taken. Can you imagine? Every square inch of the floor. This is true that the speaker had to stand in a doorway between rooms and shout uh, because of the sheer number of people. I remember being frustrated trying to push past people just to get through the hallway. Now this morning, 
as you turn into this portion of Scripture in Luke chapter 5, is it not a similar scene that is before your mind's eye this morning? Where is Jesus here? He is in a home, listen please, in Capernaum. It is actually Mark's gospel that furnishes us with that little detail. What's notable about the home? It is watching, isn't it? This home is stowed out with, with people. Who else, though, friend, who else is on the scene? That's right, outside of this home, we've got a group of men, don't we? Now, there are four of them. Again, it's Mark that lets us know about this. Four of these men, what have they done? They've come to this house. They have brought their friend there paralyzed friend on a mat and though they've really tried and they really have have tried they just can't quite get into this home and bring their friend to Jesus now what's the elephant in the room this morning at St. Peter's what's the elephant in the room it is that you all know this portion of scripture and you you know where it goes but I, I do think there are probably at least a couple of aspects of the these men's behavior that we should contemplate a couple of things about these men. Will you get them? Number one, I think you and I ought to consider the ingenuity that these men show or the imagination that these men show. I think perhaps a lot of us will have at least seen a drawing uh, over the years in our Christian world. We'll have seen a drawing of a Palestinian home from the ancient world. You've seen that? It's the sort of thing that you pick up in in a sort of illustrated Bible, isn't it? Uh, An old home in Israel from from back in in the day. Even if you have never seen such a thing, it doesn't take much to to believe that these homes were quite simple affairs. Isn't that the case? They weren't luxurious, a home back in the first century. And again, you can picture it, can't you? It's a small home, and it's got one door, usually, and there is, of course, an external staircase, isn't there? Leading up to a roof that, because of the climate, was used a lot of the time, almost like a second story, wasn't it? You can, you can think about that in the book of Acts. The Apostle Peter, you remember the vision that the Apostle Peter had, don't you? That glorious vision. Where was he when he had that vision? He was up there, wasn't he? He was up on, on, on the roof, and, and you can see what happens here. These men caring for their friend. They can't get in, so they come up with this plan. And it's a plan to use the roof. I love it. Can you imagine one of the men shouts over to the other ones, I know what we can do. Let's break in. Let's break in from above. It's unorthodox, let's say, isn't it? But there's imagination. It's genius, isn't it? There's ingenuity here. Now, that is the first thing. But should we not also consider, second of all here, the effort that we see from from these men? I I say this uh, to my shame uh, quite frequently uh, from the front, but this is uh, a portion of Scripture that I think for so many years, probably decades, it's a portion of Scripture that I, I got wrong, I misread, I think. Maybe some of you are in the same boat, or at least you can pretend to be in the same boat, because I thought for so long, and especially when I was young, I thought, see the guys up on the roof? I thought it was no big deal for them to get 
into that, into that house. No big deal to break through that roof. Were you the same at any point? I thought this was the case. He, the, all they had to do was just move a few twigs. <laughs> move a little bit of thatch. Maybe there was a little bit of mud and you're away. Things are great. But isn't it interesting to note the detail that only Luke gives us here in verse 19? What was involved here? Look at verse 19. They have to break through what? The tiles. Do you see what that tells you here? Like these roofs were not flimsy. These these roofs were solid. They were sturdy. This involved effort. It involved graft. And, And hang on a second here. What are these men trying to do? Are they trying to make a a, a little hole to drop something into this? What are they trying to do here? They're having to make this great expanse, a true large space in order to lower a full-size stretcher down into this room. What do we have here? I think we genuinely have blood, sweat, and tears. We have ingenuity, but we really also have here, and it's emphasized in Luke, we have effort. I wonder, do you, do you love this portion of Scripture? I think we do, don't we, as a church? I, I think there's a reason why we are very quick to teach our children about this episode, aren't we, in Sunday school in our homes? We love this portion of Scripture. It is an evocative portion of God's Word. The question that comes to us, though, is what are we to take out of this this morning? As St. Peter's, what is God saying to you? to me in this portion of Scripture. I think I uh, agree with the American minister, Philip Ryken. See if you agree with him. He says this, what, what we have in this story is a picture for us for Christian evangelism. What we have here is a picture for the church and a picture in these men for Christian evangelism. Would you chew over that for a moment? Can I ask you an obvious question to the Christians in the room? Do you have people in your life just now, people that you really love, people that you care for, and people who don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior? It's a simple question, and the answer is, of course we do. Each of us, people we care for who don't know Christ. And add to that what is true, that in each of these instances, there are clear obstacles. There seem to be so many obstacles we face in seeking to bring those people to the feet of Jesus, like in this story. Obstacles, aren't there? For you, If we look at our dark and sinful hearts, there's obstacles. They seem all the time just to simply setting forth before them the the facts of the gospel. And don't don't there seem to be often obstacles just to inviting those people to church? And if we're honest, aren't there sometimes just obstacles to, to us even consistently, sincerely praying for those people? So you see it in these men here. Are we not given an illustration of what godly persistence looks like in these things? Did you hear that? In these men, in this story, a picture for us as Christians of godly persistence. Persistence. 
And perhaps I think we have to ask ourselves, maybe you have to ask yourself, are there some people in your life, in my life, that we are all too readily leaving outside the house? Are there people we are leaving outside the house all too readily? You know the sort of people, do you? You know, people we love, people we don't know Jesus, people that, okay, we've, we've taken, tried to take in a stretch or maybe somewhat superficially, we try to bring them to Jesus, but because of the obstacles that we face, people that we've been too quick to just put down, people that we've been too quick to, to leave alone, I know, as you know, that we have to be, of course, discerning in when we speak to them, don't we? And we've got to be loving Got to be really careful on how we speak and when we speak, of course. But could it not be that God is challenging us in this portion of Scripture to follow after these men? I ask you to consider, are there people, are there stretchers that you need to go back to? Can we not prayerfully use our imagination and creativity again in seeking to bring those people to the feet of Jesus? Must we not again embrace the sheer efforts that are sometimes involved in Christian witness? Because there are two beautiful words in this portion of Scripture, right at the heart of it. You can see them at the end of verse 19. If you look, two lovely words. These men persist. In love and effort, imagination, they persist until what is true? The last two words of verse 19, until their friend is before Jesus. So their friend is right there in the shadow of the Lord. Isn't that what we want for our friends, our unbelieving friends, to be there before Jesus? What do we do? Perhaps from here, prayerfully, we need to seek to go away and break through a few more tiles. First of all, we see a persistence. Second of all, in this portion of scripture, I think we also see a provision. Ah, oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful provision. Um, in a sense, up until now, isn't it true that we have been exploring this story from above? Haven't we? We have, you and I, we've been up on that roof with those men getting our hands dirty and we've been working away on that roof. I think in addition to that, it's helpful that we also consider what this event, this moment would have been like from inside the house. I wonder if you would walk with me through that. Can you picture the scene from inside the house for a moment? What, what happens? So there is this room and it is, let's not be around the bush, it's packed room, isn't it? And Jesus in the middle of the room is seated and he's teaching. And what happens? All of a sudden, what do you hear? But you hear a, a scraping sound, don't you? And a little bit of dust, a dirt uh, falls uh, from above and out of nowhere, the shaft of light falls into this otherwise darkened room and you look up and what do you see? But you see a few sweaty faces looking down at you. Uh, don't you? I don't know why I looked up at the balcony at that point, but that's what happens. You look up and there's these men and you're clambering, clawing away at the, at the ceiling. Now, I could be, of course, wrong about this, 
speculation. But I do think that as this man is slowly, carefully lowered into the room, I imagine that everybody is holding their breath. And you can see why, can't you? Because everybody there is wondering, how is Jesus going to respond to this? Because is Jesus going to rebuke these men for interrupting his teaching? Is he going to rebuke these men for ruining this nice house? What is he going to do? How is Jesus going to respond? Well, what Jesus does is far more surprising than any of that. I would ask you to look at it with me. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 20 with me. Now, what does he do? Verse 20. Now, look, he sees, what is it? On the basis of their faith, he sees whose faith? Surely it includes the man on the stretcher, doesn't it? He sees their faith and he makes this declaration, this proclamation, and he declares this man's sins forgiven. Now, what did I say a second ago? I said that that there is a, and would have been a surprising, shocking declaration. Now, Christian friend in here, do you see why it would have been shocking to everyone's ear? Come on. Come on, for, for everyone in that packed room, this man's need is apparently fairly obvious, isn't he? This paralyzed man. What does this paralyzed man need Jesus to do? For everybody, they think, of course, he needs to be healed. So Christian friend, why does Jesus do what he does? Will you hear the answer? In this packed room, Jesus Christ is revealing this man's greatest need. In that packed room, the Lord Christ is revealing everyone's greatest need. Man, I, I, I do not care if you have been at St. Peter's for many decades or whether you've been at St. Peter's for just the past, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. It doesn't matter. Oh, I would implore you to, to listen to this, to hear it. What the Bible makes clear is that our greatest problem is the problem of our sin. Our greatest problem, your greatest problem, is the problem of your sin. Now, come on, what does that mean? Well, there is a sense in which we can look out there, can't we? Can't we look out into the world to see the problem of sin? Regardless if you're visiting or new to Christianity, you surely must agree with me that the world is a broken place. You look out there, what do you see but wars that are raging, don't you? You see this awful societal inequality. You see relationships that are breaking down everywhere. People's health is failing. So we can very much look out there and say, yes, there is a problem, the problem of sin. But when you look here, not just to me, but when you look within, don't you see a problem, the problem of sin? Listen, please. Your sin is your lack of conforming to the standard that God requires of you. The lack of conforming to that standard. It is the reality that individually, yes, yeah, so that's everyone in the balcony and down here and in the sides and through the back. It's the reality that individually but infinitely we have offended 
the pristine, perfect goodness, righteousness, and holiness of God. Every one of us, all of us have done that. Now, come on, where does that lead? Do you know where it leads? (laughs) Do you know where it leads? It leads to realities and words that immediately make us feel really uncomfortable in our seats. Because our sin does lead to condemnation. Let me squirm. (laughs) Judgment. Where does it really lead? Our sin leads to the only bad four-letter word that I am allowed to use really from, uh, from the pulpit or at any time. Where, where does our sin, our rebellion against God, where, where does it actually lead? It really leads to, to hell. Now it does, our rebellion against God. It leads to, to uh, listen, uh, right and fair and just and eternal outpouring of God's wrath his anger on evil, on, on sin, on that wrongdoing. Now, if you are a Christian this morning, do you not now see perhaps a new how incredibly special this portion of Scripture is? Because what's happening in Luke chapter 5? Yes, okay, yes, you are being reminded what your God is like Says so your God, this wicked tyrant? No, no, your God, what is he? He is merciful and good and he forgives sin, iniquity. He forgives transgression. That's true. But as you hear Jesus and you hear him make this declaration over this man on a stretcher, Christian friend, what are you reminded about? You're reminded that Jesus Christ has made the same declaration over you. You're reminded what Christ Jesus has done for you. Isn't it something? Consider it just now, Christian friend. Christ has said of you, man, woman, your sin, your sin, all of it, past, present, future, all of it, it's forgiven. Now, Christian friend, listen, you like this man in Luke chapter 5. You have entered into a new state of existence. That's what's happened to you as a Christian. You've entered into a new state of forgiveness from which you can never, ever be removed. You exist in a state of forgiveness, cleansed, sin, all of it remitted. So in your life, whether you realize it or not, somebody somewhere has taken you on a stretcher. In your life, somebody has taken you and brought you to the feet of Jesus. I would love to know in your life who that was. Maybe we're too slow, are we, to talk about our experiences of of this happening. You know, you can fill in the blanks, can't you? Who brought you in that stretcher to the feet of Jesus? I will be a little bit personal. We're Scots, but you'll forgive me. For me, it was my mom and my dad. Do you know what they did? They broke through the tiles. That's what they did. By praying consistently for their child, for teaching me about Jesus. Oh, by being patient when I rebelled against them. For you, it's different. Maybe, maybe it's the same. You can fill in the blanks. And aren't we so grateful to those, to those people? Aren't we? Aren't we? 
But who is it alone that deserves all of the recognition and all of the praise? And we know the answer. All praise must go to Jesus Christ. Now, listen, for what has Christ done for you? And think about this story. What has Christ done for you? The Lord Jesus Christ for you has been carried by men. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the body of Christ carried, having in death faced all the punishment that your sins deserved. What else has Christ done for you? He, like here, has been on that cross, Lord. Not into, into a room, from, from a ceiling, but Christ on that cross, he's been lowered into that hell. He's faced all of that just and, and righteous and eternal punishment, wrath that, that you deserve. He's fa- and what else has Christ done? Christ, too, has walked again. Not picking up a mat and leaving a room. No. The Lord Jesus Christ has walked out of that tomb. He's walked out utterly victorious, able now to bestow. What's that word? He's able to bestow forgiveness on all who will look to him in faith. Isn't that diamond, that diamond of forgiveness, isn't it worthwhile us taking out and inspecting and admiring a little bit more? Listen to what Christ says to you, Christian friend in the gospel. Do you want to hear it? Isaiah 43, Christ says to you, I, even I am the one who wipes out all of your transgressions. Or do you want to hear it from Luke chapter five? What has God said of you? He said, in Christ, he has said to you, man, woman, no matter what the sins have been, man, woman, your sins, they have been forgiven you. We see, first of all, a persistence. We see, second of all, a provision. God. Third of all, we see a proof, a proof. I, uh, although I've uh, passed over the detail up until now, I do think it's actually worth you and I noticing who exactly it was that made up the crowd, who exactly what it was that was in attendance. Did you notice this? Did you pick up on this? Who's in this room? Who's outside this uh, house. Although none of the other synoptics seem to, to, to mention this, Luke wants you to see who it is. And it's in verse 15, there is the presence of, uh, sorry, verse 17, that the presence of two groups. Now, both of these groups get their first mention in Luke's gospel at this precise point, these two groups. They've not been mentioned up until now. Who are they? Um, first of all, in that room, we have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were there. Now, we're, we're comfortable with that, are we? we? We understand who we're dealing with. When I talk about the Pharisees, who were they? The Pharisees were a lay religious group, weren't they? So not priests, but a lay religious group. A group that was so concerned with Torah observance. What had they done? They had built up this vast network tradition of extra rules, hadn't they? Extra laws, these pharisaical laws. We know the Pharisees. That's the first group. Who's the second group? 
gives them two names, actually, in the text. So the teachers of the law are the scribes. Who are the scribes? They are the, I don't know, you can think of it, I suppose, like the Pharisees prosecuting lawyers. So when you hear, you think about the scribes, that's what you're thinking about, prosecuting lawyers. So these were the guys who were able to rule on whether the Pharisees' laws, traditions, had been broken. You get the picture? You see who's in there? Well, when you appreciate who it is that's packed into that room, I think the reaction to Jesus' declaration about this paralytic, I think the reaction is understandable. Don't you? Christian friend, what do you know from the Old Testament? Don't you know that it was God and God alone who had the authority to forgive sin? Don't we know that? So in the Old Testament, what could Old Testament prophets do? From time to time, Old Testament prophets could bring God's word from God, couldn't they? Old Testament prophets, they could also heal in God's power. But what was reserved for God alone? God alone, Yahweh alone, had the authority to forgive and to remit sin. So you can see the reaction. They're looking at each other, wondering, what did Jesus just say? What was that he said? What was that blasphemy? You can see it in that packed, hot room. There is this silent, it's all silent, it's not spoken, but it is a very real rejection of Jesus. It's the first rejection we have in the gospel of Luke. There's a sense in which they look at Jesus and they say, this claim about forgiveness is entirely illegitimate. Now, what Jesus does is he responds to them with a question of his own. Now, what I would love to know from the room this morning is whether you see what Jesus is doing in this question and why he asks this question to the room. So let's look at it in verse 23. So there's this rejection. What did he say? This is blasphemy. How can he forgive sins? And what does Jesus ask? He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk. Friends, Christian friends, do you see why Jesus is asking that question? There is a sense, isn't there? Wouldn't you agree with me? That it's probably easier in some senses to say, (laughs) your sin is forgiven, than to say, and now rise up and walk. In a sense, it's easier to say, the former, do you see why Jesus is doing what he's doing? Listen, please. Jesus says this in order to set things up that he might provide proof that he is who he claims to be. He asks this question that he might set things up, that he might provide proof that his declaration about forgiveness is true, that he has that authority. And how does he provide proof? In that moment, Jesus looks at the man on that stretcher and he heals him and he gives him the ability to walk. Strength returns to his limbs. And this man who entered the room being lowered from the ceiling, this man is given the ability by Jesus to exit the room and exit through the front door. Now, this morning, for the majority, of course, of this sermon, I have spoken to you in here. If you have your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, of course I have. 
I'd love to end right now just by addressing you. If you're yet to, to know Christ and yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I wonder if that is you. I wonder if you sense the challenge of this particular portion of God's Word. Do you see what this text is challenging you to do? This text here is prompting you to decide for yourself about who Jesus of Nazareth really is. As this text grabs you, doesn't it? And it places you in that room. As you hear Jesus' words today, as you witness with your mind's eye this, this man pick up his mat and, and leave, you see what the text is doing? It is prompting you to decide whether Jesus is who he says he is. Does he have the authority he claims to have? Can, can, this, can this one forgive my sin? And so I ask you, what do you say? What answer to that do you give? Who is Jesus? I think that, uh, that, that, that famous line from C.S. Lewis springs to mind, doesn't it here? Doesn't it? What does C.S. Lewis say about Jesus? He's either mad, bad, or he's God. I prefer how an old Scottish, not that I'm biased, but I prefer how an old Scottish preacher put it. As you wrestle with Jesus' identity, he, he said, Rabbi Duncan said, Jesus is either deluded, self-deceived, or Jesus of Nazareth is divine. What saith you? How do you answer that? Because I know this. I know what we do as Christians at St. Peter's is we join the crowd, don't we? At the end of this section of Scripture, and we rejoice in these things. And we join them glorifying God. For what do we know, Christian friends? We know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. And we believe that he is the only one with authority to do what? To fully and freely forgive us for all of our sins. I think we end where we begun, and I ask you, can you say this in your heart? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Friends, let's bow and let's pray. Lord God, we do rejoice in your mercy. Now, Lord God, we see that there is for us such a deep challenge in this portion of Scripture to pick up a stretcher to pick up a, a mat, a bed, and seek to bring our loved ones to the feet of Jesus. But we know your work is the work of salvation. And so this morning as a church, we thank you that you have declared over us our sin is gone, it is wiped out, it is taken. Our sin is forgiven. We thank you for your work of the cross. 
and we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.